0: Judges chapter 11. Would you turn there, please? I've entitled this message tonight, A Life of Good Character. A Life of Good Character. Webster's dictionary, his 1828 dictionary, defines character like this. I think I left this on your worksheet. Peculiar qualities impressed on a person which distinguishes him from others. Thank you, Bob. With that particular definition, That can be good character or bad character. Peculiar qualities impressed on a person which distinguish him or her from others. So some people have questionable character. Have you ever said this? Well, that guy's a character. That's not a compliment. If you hear someone saying that about you, they are not complimenting you if they use it like that. That guy's a character. Now you may hear someone else say, but now she is a woman of she's a woman of character now that's a compliment that's what we're talking about tonight we're talking about living a life of of good character maybe another word maybe you prefer the word integrity you remember job's wife we went through that book a while back job's wife asking him uh, do you still retain your integrity job was known for having a good character to him a good integrity We are to strive to be men and women of integrity as believers, and this is something we choose. You choose your character or your integrity or the lack thereof. That's not inherent. Uh, That's not genetic. It's not situational. It's not thrust on you on circumstance. You choose your character. Proverbs chapter 22 verse 1 says a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. If someone says he or she is a man or woman of character, they have chosen to have that name. They've made good choices. Somebody said that character is what you do when no one is looking. But the truth is someone is always looking. If no one's around, God's looking. But that's what character is. Character is what you do when no human being can see what you do. That's how we know integrity exists. The world ought to see a difference in us as Christians. Godly, holy, courageous, bold, unafraid to do what is right. I'm not saying be discompassionate. I'm not saying being harsh, but but doing right. Doing what is right. Our generation needs us to be godly, holy, bold, and Christ-like. And this man that we're going to study tonight, his name is Jephthah, that was him. He was a man who lived a life of good character. He tends to get a bad rep uh, for the vow that he made. You're mostly going to remember, when we talk about him, if you're familiar with him at all, you're mostly going to remember the end of uh, chapter 11 more than the beginning of it. But I would like you to see tonight a man who lived a life of good character. And then when we wrap up tonight, we're going to take a good hard look at that vow. And I hope to challenge maybe what you think about that with with the scriptures. Uh, Jephthah was this, this man. We're going through the book of Judges. If you're just joining us tonight, maybe it's the first time, this is a survey. So it's not every chapter, it's not every verse, it's not every judge. Um, we have, in fact, we've skipped a couple of chapters, haven't we? Uh, we've gone from Gideon to Jephthah. Um, this is just surveying the book. It's a here and there kind of survey. Um, I'm trying, I hope to, over the 10 or 11, I can't remember if there's 10 or 11, uh, 11 studies in this series, I'm hoping to give you an overview of the judges, not at every judge, because some are only mentioned in a verse or two or three. But just giving you maybe an overview of the book with some highlights in here. Tonight's judge is Jephthah. His story is in chapters 11 and 12. We're going to confine our study with him in chapter number 11 and looking at this this man of character. Let's meet him by reading the first couple of verses together. Judges chapter 11. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, and he was the son of an harlot. And Gilead begat Jephthah. So his father's name was Gilead. In that first verse, look at the order in which God gives you the information on him. You get his name, you get what he's known for, and you get his background. His name is Jephthah, he's known as being a mighty man of valor. And his background is is his mom was a prostitute. His dad's name, God indicts Gilead here, his dad's name was Gilead. And Gilead's wife, or Jephthah's stepmom, bare him sons. And his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust out Jephthah, and said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house... For thou art the son of a strange woman. That strange woman is a a phrase that's used often. You're familiar with that in the book of Proverbs. It, It refers to a woman who has loose morals. Oftentimes, it's another word for a harlot or a prostitute. So when they came of age, the sons kicked Jephthah out of the house. And they kicked him out of the family. So I'd like to look at tonight about uh, this man named Jephthah and the verses that follow gives us kind of an interesting story about him. And we're going to start with this. In these first three verses, we're looking at the fact that his character or or the, the note, his character in the face of difficulties. His character in the face of difficulties. There are a lot of people, maybe you know some, there are a lot of people that use their background as an excuse for their current behavior. They use their life history or experiences they've had to excuse what they're doing now. If anyone could do that, it could have been Jephthah. Now he's the son of a harlot, now he's kicked out of his house. His father Gilead had an illicit relationship with a prostitute, and he was the result of that relationship. As he and it, it makes it sound like uh, he was maybe older than his other brothers. Um, and as they came of age, you see there, they booted him out of the house. His half-brothers gave him the boot. Um, there are a lot of people that would choose to respond to such a background by doing whatever they want. Say, well, you know, I've had a hard time. I'm so thankful Jephthah didn't do that. I want, as we go through the following verses, I want you to see that what happened to him in his past was not used as an excuse for how he conducted himself now. And there are some phrases that are, that are tucked into these verses that say a lot about his godly character. You might re- read over them quickly if, you're, if you go through this chapter uh, in a brief reading. But there's a lot that's said about him. But one thing I appreciate is the fact that he didn't use his past experiences to excuse sinful behavior or a bad attitude today. I wrote down a couple of things, two lessons to learn regarding your past. Here's the first one. We are not determined by our backgrounds. There's a lot of people who would say, well, you, you better not expect too much of Jephthah. He didn't really have a whole lot to work with. I mean, he's, he was the son of a prostitute. His mom wasn't worth much. His brothers kicked him out of the house. He didn't have a very good start, and then they'll start they'll start excusing their behavior. Be careful about doing that, Christian. Be careful about excusing current behavior based on past experience. Y'all, I can say this in this group. I couldn't say this if I was teaching like the single adult class in this generation or the teens. But y'all remember Ann Landers? See, there we go. Now I'm talking to the right people. Listen to what she said. Consider what she said here. One of the most painful, self-mutilating, time and energy-consuming exercises in the human experience is guilt. It can ruin your day, or your week, or your life if you let it. It turns up like a bad penny when you do something dishonest, hurtful, tacky, selfish, or rotten. She said that... Encouraging people not to feel guilty and struggle with guilt. Yet, she says, it's the result of doing something dishonest, hurtful, tacky, selfish, or rotten. Now, here's the truth. If you or I do something dishonest, hurtful, tacky, selfish, or rotten, you ought to feel guilty. You ought to, and I ought to. Guilt is a good thing if we respond to it correctly. Now, you ought not to be guilty. You ought not to feel guilty for what you did not do. You you can't be guilty for someone else's actions. But if, and another thing, you shouldn't feel guilty if your sins have been forgiven. If God's forgiven them and if he's put them, uh, if he's put them as far as the east is from the west, then you can let that go. But if there's unconfessed sin or dishonesty or tackiness or selfishness or using Ann Lander's words there, then there ought to be a weight on you and on me. For that. But we don't have to be determined by those. His birth, think about this. His birth was the result of a sinful act. But he did not let that, he did not let that uh, determine how he was going to live the rest of his life. That wasn't, on, that wasn't on him. One could say he was born wrong, couldn't you? But that's true of every one of us. Every one of us were born wrong. We were born in Adam. And we have to be born right. We have to be born again. Here's the first lesson here. We're not determined by our backgrounds. Don't use your background as an excuse. Here's the second lesson. We have the choice to make a different way. We have the choice to make a different way. Dr. John Phillips used to say, you know how a <coughs> he used to say, you know how a uh, diamond broker illustrates the brilliance of a diamond? He'll put it on the blackest piece of velvet that he can. And your life as a Christian or my life as a Christian ought to shine brightly against the black background of our sin. We don't have to stay in the blackness of that sin. We let Christ come in and the Bible says this. Jesus said it actually. He said, let your light so shine before men. You can let that brilliance of Christ, the Christ that dwelleth in you, who's the hope of glory, you can let that shine, let that light shine against the backdrop of a, sinful, of a sinful life back there. Absolutely. This is the difference Christ can make. We have the choice to make a different way. Jephthah could have used his background as an excuse. Who else could have? Old Testament, end of the book of Genesis, the entire life story of Joseph. If anybody had a right to make excuse for how they were, if if somebody was going to be bitter and hard uh, in their heart, Joseph could have had, he could have had a good argument for being somebody who had the right to be bitter. Uh, My brothers didn't like me. Um, uh, He had all kinds of things. My boss's wife falsely accused me. I was unjustly thrown in jail. Bible historians believe that he spent at least 10 years in jail for a crime he didn't commit. All of those things, he was forgotten while he was in there. You remember that? It cost him two years. At eight years, he had an opportunity. If one guy would have remembered to do what he needed to do, he could have spent eight instead of ten years in jail. But that butler forgot him. And, and my, well, my point is that Joseph chose to make a different way. Out of all those things that had happened to him, Jephthah did exactly the same thing. I want you to see right at the beginning Jephthah's character in the face of difficulties. He had a life that was hard. And you've had a life that is hard, perhaps. Bad things happened in your life, bad things happen in this life. It's a sin cursed world. The planet itself is cursed. I like what what Ken Ham said. He said, everybody talks about the magnificence of the Grand Canyon. He said, the Grand Canyon is Earth's largest sin scar. It's a remnant of the flood. It reminds us of the judgment of God. This life is going to have bad things. You're going to have bad things happen in this life. Joseph did. Jephthah did. I have. You have. But we don't have to let those things determine how we live our lives today. We, we can choose a better way. We choose to follow God. God allowed those things to happen. When they happened. Where they happened. God allowed those things. God designed those things. So how can I benefit from them? Well, that's where Jephthah came from. So first, his character in the face of difficulties. That's the first three verses that we meet him. Then starting at verse 4, and this is a big chunk, all the way down through verse number 28, his confidence in the face of danger. Now his brothers may not have wanted him, but all of a sudden the elders of Israel did. You see that? Look at verse number 4. It came, and it came to pass in the process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. And it was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. And they said unto Jephthah, Come and be our captain, that we may fight with the children of Ammon. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, Did not ye hate me and expel me out of my father's house? And why are ye come unto me now when ye are in distress? The elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, Therefore we turn again to thee now, that thou mayest go with us and fight against the children of Ammon, and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Why are they coming to Jephthah for that? Verse number one, he's a man of valor. In fact, he's a mighty man of valor. Here was a professional soldier. He was good at it. And they come to him and they make this request of him when the children of Ammon come. So, in, And they said, you come, be our head. Be our leader in this. Verse number 9. And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the children of Ammon, and the, and the Lord deliver them before me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, the Lord be witness between us if we do not so according to thy words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and captain over them. And Jephthah uttered all his words before the Lord in Mizpeh. And Jephthah sent messengers unto the king of the children of Ammon, saying, What hast thou to do with me, that thou art come against me to fight in my land? And the king of the children of Ammon answered unto the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt, from Arnon even to Jabbok unto Jordan. Now therefore restore those lands again peaceably. And Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of uh, the children of Ammon and said unto him, Thus saith Jephthah Israel took not away the land of Moab, nor the land of the children of Ammon. But when Israel came up from Egypt and walked through the wilderness unto the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, Then Israel sent messengers unto the king of Edom, saying, Let me, I pray thee, pass through thy land. But the king of Edom would not hearken thereto. And in like manner they sent sent unto the king of Moab, but he would not consent, and Israel abode in Kadesh. Then they went along through the wilderness and encompassed the land of Edom, the land of Moab. They came by the east side of the land of Moab and pitched on the other side of Arnon, but came not within the border of Moab, for Arnon was the border of Moab. Israel sent messengers unto Sion, king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon. And Israel said unto him, Let us pass, we pray thee, through thy land into my place. But Sion trusted not Israel to pass through his coast. But Sion gathered all his people together and pitched in Jehaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they smote them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country... And they possessed all the coast of the Amorites, from Arnon unto Jabbok, from the wilderness even unto Jordan. So now the Lord God of Israel hath dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, and shouldest thou possess it? Wilt not thou possess that which Chemosh thy God giveth thee to possess? So whomsoever the Lord our God shall drive out from before us, them will we possess. Let's stop right there. That's, a, that's, quite a, uh, that's quite a little uh, negotiation going on between this newly appointed leader for the Israelites, this man named Jephthah. I want you to see his confidence in the face of danger. He already had this reputation, verse 1, of being a strong man when they come to him uh, and they, they give him this offer, come and lead us. In verse number 7, he sounds a lot like God does in chapter 10 Verses 13 and 14. Back in chapter 10, uh, verse number 13, God says to Israel, Yet ye have forsaken me and served other gods. Wherefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry unto the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. Listen to, listen to uh, Jephthah in verse number 7. Did ye not hate me and expel me out of my father's house? Why are ye come unto me now when ye are in distress? He sounds a lot like God. What are you, what are you doing here now? Israel did exactly what they usually did. They turned, to, they turned to someone when they ran into a problem. But he sees an opportunity here. Jephthah sees an opportunity. So he asks them this question. If God gives us the victory under my leadership, will you follow me? And they said they, they said they would. They did exactly what they've been doing through the book of Judges so far. They turned to someone they previously had put out. They rejected God until they got sold into slavery. And then they cried out to God and he delivered them. They kicked Jephthah out of his house. But now when they were in distress, as he calls it, they turned to him. I want, I want you to go back and we're, we're going to look at two per- verses in particular But I want you to note how Jephthah, in his negotiations with these Israeli leaders, notice how he emphasized the Lord in all of this. His confidence was in God. It was not in himself. Did you note what he said in verse number 9? If the Lord deliver them before me. If we win this, it'll be because God delivered us. And then in verse number 11, after the negotiations are complete, did you see what it said at the end of verse number 11? Jephthah uttered all his words before the Lord. He went to praying. The thing that I want you to see here is that prayer was not his last resort. It was his first. Before ever going to battle. He went and rehearsed all his words before the Lord. His prayer, his declaration of the Lord giving them victory. They're revealing to us that he's not only a man of good character. He's a man who has faith in God. Verse number nine is important. The wording of verse number nine is important. If the Lord delivers them. If the Lord delivers them before me. God was going to do this. It wasn't Jephthah. He wasn't, he wasn't thumping his own chest. His confidence in the face of danger was in God. James chapter 1, and you're familiar with those verses so we won't turn there, but James chapter 1 says if you lack wisdom, ask God. He'll give it to you liberally. Same chapter, verse number 17, James writes, Every good and perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights. Anything that was going to be realized in this battle, this campaign, this military campaign that they were going to have, anything that was going to be realized or gained, Jeff is saying this, God's going to do it for us if he delivers them and then he goes and he prays to him. The danger that Jephthah was facing was this this army from Ammon. The danger that you and I face might be very different. But if we're walking in obedience with God and our confidence is in God, he will take us through those same obstacles. Whatever your obstacle is. I'm sure it's not the army of Ammon. None of you have come and told me you're picking a fight with Ammon. So I doubt that's your uh, immediate threat. But you and I do have dangers. We have dangerous situations that we face where choices need to be made. And if we make the wrong choice, it could be tragic for our family. It could be tragic for ourselves. Well, Jephthah took his, he took his argument to the Lord. And then I can't. I, we read a lot of verses here and so I can't pass this up, but notice Jephthah's attempt to negotiate out of battle with this king from Ammon. He argues with him on four points. He tells the king of Ammon four reasons that they don't have to fight about this. What he's doing is he's saying, you do not have a claim to this land. This land, legitimately, it belongs to Israel. You don't have a And he gives him four arguments. First of all, in verses 14 through 22, he argues the facts of history. Now, here's the truth. Well, we came out of Egypt, you, Moab, the Amorites, none of you would let us walk through your land to get to our land. None of you would. All we want to do is walk through it. You didn't let us. So he argues the facts of history in verses 14 through 22. And then in verses 23 and 24, he says the Lord gave us that land. And in, in fact, and you know how I am, you know how I pick up on some sarcasm in the scripture every once in a while. Did you notice verse number twenty-four? That jumped off the page to me. It might be because it just might be because of who I am, but he jumped, it jumped off the page at me. He says, Why don't you just be happy with what your God has given you? Just be happy with the land your God's given you. We're happy with the land our God has given us. And that's what he says in verse number uh, twenty verse number twenty-four. Wilt thou not possess that which Chemosh, thy God, giveth thee to possess? We're just living in the land our God gave us. You live in the land your God gave us. So he he says the Lord gave us that land. So first he argues the facts of history. Second, he says Jehovah gave us this land. Third, he says Israel has occupied this land for 300 years. Why are you bringing it up now? Look at verse 25. And now... Thou art uh, now, thou art anything better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel or did he ever fight against them? While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and her towns, and Aroer and her towns, and in all the cities that be along the coasts of Arnon, 300 years. Why, therefore, did ye not recover them within that time? You've had three centuries. To put a legitimate claim up. And you haven't. Why now? He says Israel has occupied this land for so long. You've said nothing about it. And then his fourth argument is this. If the Amorite chose to fight. If this king was going to fight against Israel. He needed to know. You're fighting against Jehovah. I I like the way Jephthah gave him a good warning. Don't you? He warns him. Look at verse number 27. Wherefore I have not sinned against thee. But thou doest me wrong to go to war against me. The Lord, the judge, don't you like that capital J? The Lord, the judge, be judged this day between the children of Israel and the children of Ammon. Howbeit the king of the children of Ammon hearken not unto the words of Jephthah, which he sent to him. He let him know up front. If you pick this fight, you're, you're fighting against the capital J judge. So he has those four arguments with him. And what I want you to see in those verses, in that block of verses from verse 4 all the way down to verse number 28, I want you to see the confidence that this man had in the face of danger. He is absolutely sure he is on the side of right. Because he argues from a platform that God is with us. Jehovah is with us. So character in the face of difficulties. He was the son of prostitute. His half-brothers kicked him out. Just wasn't a good start. Confidence in the face of danger. He's facing down an army, and he's confident God's going to deliver. Third, his commitment in the face of dilemma. This is where, uh, from verse 29 forward, this becomes one of the most controversial passages, maybe in the whole Bible, certainly in the Old Testament. Let's read this, verse number 29, and if I can just invite you, note how verse number 29 begins for what's going to follow. Verse 29 says, then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh, and passed over Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed over unto the children of Ammon. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, if thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands, and he smote them from Eroer even till thou come to Minneth, even twenty cities, and unto the plain of the vineyards, with a very great slaughter. Thus the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. And Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances. And she was his only child, and beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her, that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me. For I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. And she said unto him, My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do to me according to that which hath proceeded out of thy mouth. For as much as the Lord hath taken vengeance for thee of thine enemies, even of the children of Ammon. And she said unto her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months, that I may go up and down upon the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. She, and, and he said, go, and he sent her away for two months. And she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed, and she knew no man. And it was a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in a year. Now, do you see why I say that is one of the most controversial passages of scripture in the Old Testament, if not the Bible? His commitment in the face of dilemma. In verses 29 through 31, here's what he says. Lord, give me victory and I'll offer you the first thing that comes out of my house when I return. He gets that great victory in verses 32 and 33. And may I say this, God did not give him the victory because of his vow. He gave him that victory because of his faith. His faith was in God for the victory, and the same thing is true with you and me. If you'll put your confidence in God, God gives the victory. Paul would say later, we go from victory to victory. It's just a wonderful process. As long as we're walking in obedience, our faith is in God. And then verse 34, big problem. He said, I'll give you the first thing that walks out of my house. And what was the first thing that walked out of his house? It wasn't a thing. It was his daughter. Now, if we had time tonight, we'd look up the scriptures that I left on your worksheet. I know I left that part on there. What the Bible says about a vow being made all of those scriptures are going to tell you if you make a vow, keep a vow. I will read one of them and that one is in uh, Psalm chapter number 66. I'll I'll, I'll read just that passage of scripture but this, this will give you the idea of what the rest of the verses say. Psalm 66 verse number 13 says, I will go into thy house with burnt offerings I will pay thee my vows which my lips have uttered and, with, and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. Well, he was in trouble. He was facing the Ammonites. He made this vow and he made the vow to God. And the vow, the, the vow was, I'll offer as a burnt offering the first thing that comes out of my house. So you have this. Uh, now, he didn't have, obviously, yet the book of Psalms, but he did have this. He had Numbers chapter 30 in verse number 2. Numbers 32 says, If a man vow a vow unto the Lord or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. Now we have this passage of scripture we have to deal with. This spirit-filled man made this vow. And you have to ask yourself the question... Did he in fact offer his daughter as a burnt offering to God? Now, I'm, I'm going to share with you tonight reasons why I do not believe he offered her as a burnt offering. I have good friends who believe he did offer her as a burnt offering. I just don't think it's possible, not with what the Bible reveals about Jephthah overall. So I want to share my reasons with you why I believe, and I want to make this clear, this is why I believe he did not offer her as a burnt offering, but he did keep his vow. So how does that happen then, Pastor? Let's, let's look exactly at what the Bible says, both here and in other places. Would would you agree with me on this? Would you agree with on this on this statement? The scripture never contradicts itself. Would you agree with that? Scripture does not contradict itself. That is a foundational rule of Bible interpretation, the what is known as hermeneutics. Scripture does not contradict itself. It can't because the very word of God is God's word and he can't contradict himself. All right, so let's proceed. I think I have six reasons that I believe he didn't. Now... If you hold, I'll say this to you, if you hold that he gave his, off, his daughter up as a burnt offering, we're not going to break fellowship, and neither you nor I have to leave the fellowship of Faith Baptist Church. If you disagree with me, that's absolutely fine. It's just that when I compare scripture with scripture, and knowing what I know, not even about Jephthah, but what I know about God, I just have a hard time believing this took place. So what happened then? And what happened? Let's look at it first. These are reasons. These are reasons why I believe he did not sacrifice his daughter. Number one, he was ambiguous and failed to consider what qualified as an acceptable sacrifice. He said in his vow, did you note this? He said in his vow in verse 31, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me, I'll offer as a burnt offering. That's not, a quali- that, that's not an honorable statement. It can't be kept in an obedient way to God because not every animal was an acceptable sacrifice as a burnt offering. There are specific rules for offering a burnt offering. You can't say the first thing I see I'm going to offer. The first goat that comes out of my house or the first sheep that walks out of my yard, That's what I'm, you can't say that because there are, there are qualifications for it. He was ambiguous, and he failed to consider what was qualified as an acceptable sacrifice. He could have said this, I'll offer you a generous burnt offering, and that would have been fine. But he said, I'm going to offer whatsoever comes out. And you and I both know that the sacrifices made to God in in any of the offerings, they had qualifiers on them. Remember them? No blemishes. No broken bones. Notice this too, it was ambiguous enough to where he didn't say whoever, he said whatever. He didn't say in, in verse 31 at the end of the phrase where it says, I will offer it up for a burnt offering. He didn't say I will offer him or her up. He said it. He was ambiguous and failed to consider what qualified as an, as an acceptable sacrifice. Let me ask you a question. What You know about God. Would God take seriously a vow that violated God's own law? Before you say yes or no, read the qualifications of Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. God would have to violate his own law to accept this burnt offering. He's not going to do it. If an unclean animal had been the first thing out of the house, that would not have been an acceptable offering. So that's the first reason that I don't believe it. This was an ambiguous vow, and he failed to consider what qualified as an acceptable sacrifice. Second reason, as a worshiper of Jehovah, he had to know that the Lord would not accept human sacrifice. He had to know that. Apparently, he was familiar with the Old Testament, and particularly with the Old Testament law, because he referred to a burnt offering, and that's part of the Levitical law. So write down, if you don't have them, Leviticus 18.21, Leviticus 20.1-5, Deuteronomy 12.31, and Deuteronomy 18.10, all of which forbid offering your children as sacrifices. The phrase they use is passing them through the fire, which would be a burnt offering. God himself forbade it. As a worshiper of Jehovah, he knew the Lord would not accept human sacrifice. I know Judges was a spiritually dark time, but it wasn't this time. It wasn't this dark, rather. And Jephthah was a follower of Jehovah. Reason number three, he had no acceptable place to offer a human sacrifice as a burnt offering. He had no acceptable place to offer a human as a burnt offering. Leviticus 17, 1 through 9, especially verses 8 and 9, God only is going to accept burnt offerings on the brazen altar at the tabernacle. Abraham didn't have the tabernacle. Jacob didn't have a tabernacle. So they're building altars here and building altars there. But once the tabernacle was in place, Israel's burnt offerings were to be offered at the place where God would choose to put his name. And he chose to put his name at the tabernacle. And the place for the burnt offering was the brazen uh, altar. And even the most carnal priest was not going to allow a human girl to be sacrificed on the brazen altar at the tabernacle. That just wasn't going to happen. In the two months that are mentioned in chapter eleven, verses thirty-eight and thirty-nine, the news of his vow and it's and, and him fulfilling it, it would have gotten out. And even idolatrous Israel never came to the place where they were offering humans on the brazen altar. They never got that far in their in their idolatry. That's that's another reason. That's the third reason I believe that he had no place to make the sacrifice. The fourth reason, this is interesting. Leviticus chapter 27 verses 1 through 8 says that he could have paid money to redeem his daughter from being sacrificed. If he he saw her walk out of his house and had made this vow back here, I'll sacrifice whatever walks out of my house, I'll offer it as a burnt offering, and she walks out, if, he, if his intent was to sacrifice her on, an, on the altar at the tabernacle, he could have gone to the priest at the tabernacle, and Leviticus 27 even specifies, even says this, the priest can determine what amount of money you can pay so you don't have to give that particular offering. He could have paid money according to the law. He could have paid money to get out of that, Levitical, that burnt offering in the Levitical system. He had just won a victory where they probably spoiled the Ammonites. And I imagine as their leader, he had enough wealth to pay whatever price that priest was going to demand. Look it up. Leviticus 27, he could have paid money to redeem his daughter if human sacrifice was the intent here. So I don't believe he sacrificed her because he could have paid money and got out of it. But he's wailing. He's, he's legitimately upset. So what's going on? Well, here's, here's the fifth reason I don't believe... He offered her as a burnt offering. Jephthah's godly character would prevent him from sacrificing his daughter. I would point you to again to chapter 11, verses 29, where it says he was spirit-filled. Verses 9 and 11 indicate he was committed to following Jehovah. How could a spirit-filled man committed to following Jehovah make a vow that even hinted at burnt sacrifice? The, the fact is that Jephthah had a godly character to him, and he would not have made a vow that involved killing his daughter for God. In fact, his influence, his godly influence was so strong. Did you, did you catch that in verse number 36? Even his daughter has great faith in Jehovah. Did you see what she said in verse number 36? Whatever you said, Dad, whatever you vowed to God, you got to do it. Because he gave you a great victory today. Well, that's strong faith. He was passing that faith along to his kids. Jephthah's godly character would prevent him from sacrificing his daughter. And then here is here's my last, I think this is my last one. Nowhere in the text are we told that Jephthah killed his daughter. It does not say he sacrificed his daughter. What is her lament in verse number 37? What is she mourning over? Her impending death? That's not what she's bewailing. In verse 37, she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me go alone two months that I may go up and down the mountains. And what? Bewail my virginity. She's a Jew. Remember this. She's a Jew, and the Jews have received promise that someone is going to bring forth Messiah one day. The hope of every Jewish girl, until it became known what tribe he was going to be from, the hope of every Jewish girl was she was going to be in the line of Christ. Not only that, the focus of her grief is her ongoing virginity, not only about the Messiah, but she's never going to have a family of her own. She's never going to be a mother. She's never going to be married. It is inconceivable to me that the daughters of Israel there mentioned in verse number 40, it's inconceivable to me that they would establish an annual four-day celebration. And that is literally what the word lament, in the King James Bible you have the word lament, That word in Hebrew means celebration. It seems inconceivable to me that there would be a four-day celebration in memorial of a human sacrifice. Nothing in this makes sense as far as Jephthah offering his daughter as a burnt offering to God. When you compare scripture with scripture... God ordaining and instituting the burnt sacrifice, but putting qualifiers of it, that same God forbidding the burning of your children in worship. So what is going on here? How is all of this explained? It's explained by the fact that Jephthah's daughter was consecrated, I believe, to the Lord's service for the rest of her life, most likely at the tabernacle like Samuel will be. I believe she was consecrated and set apart to never marry and serve at the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 38 and verse 8, 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 22, both of them reference the women assembled at the door of the tabernacle. They seem to be ministers there. In some capacity, I don't know what it was, if they were singers, if they were servants, if they... Uh, If they helped prepare utensils, I don't know what they did, but they seem to have been ministering at the tabernacle. In remaining a virgin, she would never marry. She'd never have children. And you noted in verse number 34, she's Jephthah's only child. Why is this so hard on Jephthah? He's been kicked out of Gilead's inheritance. So whatever he has now, he's going to pass on to his children. But his only child is a girl, and she's never going to marry, and she's never going to have kids. His family line ends when his daughter dies. Now, to you and I, that might be a passing thing. That might weigh on us a little bit, but in Israel, that was such a big deal. Passing on the inheritance of God to your sons and your sons' sons. His line was going to end with his daughter. This weighed heavily on them. This was the reason for the two months of mourning, because every daughter in in Israel wanted a child, and every father wanted his inheritance to be passed on for generations. Warren Wearsby points this out. Let me conclude, but Warren Wearsby points this out. Did I leave a Wearsby quote on your worksheet? He, he just said this. I thought this was a good observation. Jephthah's daughter deserves to stand with Isaac as a faithful child who is willing to obey both father and God no matter what the cost. I thought that was a good observation. As I said, you and I may differ on this. You may believe that he, you may believe that he sacrificed her. It's okay. But did you know this man is mentioned in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 by name? Isaiah is not even mentioned by name. Jephthah is. You say, yeah, but there were, there were other people in there that were also great sinners. Moses killed a guy. None of those mentioned in, Hebrew, in Hebrews chapter 11 committed what the Bible calls an abomination. And the Bible qualifies human sacrifice or the sacrificing of children an abomination. And he's listed there. Can I give you one more word without attacking Without attacking the King James Bible, let me just give you one more thing. Where it says in his vow, in verse number 31, the last phrase of verse 31 says, And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. That word, and, is also, it's the Hebrew word, wa, W-A-W. Now, you can word search this. Just check me out. You can word search this. W-A-W is translated in several different ways. In addition and and equally, there's nothing more, uh, one more than the other. That word is also translated the word or a lot of times in scripture. So in looking at that, when I return, uh, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, surely shall surely be the Lord's or I will offer it up for a burnt offering. I'm not saying take that out and, and rewrite it. I'm just saying that that word wa is the same Hebrew word that elsewhere hundreds and hundreds of times in the, Old Trans, in the Old Testament is translated or. I think that's perhaps the weakest argument. Simply because it says and. If the Holy Spirit had meant or, he could have put it. I don't know that. But it's the same Hebrew word. Even without that argument, you have to to see that God accepting a daughter in a burnt offering makes absolutely no biblical sense in the context of this. If I were going to be sacrificed on an altar as as a young man or a young woman, if I were going to be offered on an altar as a young person, I don't know that my virginity would be the top of my list in wailing if I was going to be burned to death. There there are things said in this passage of scripture that to me reveal him as a man of good godly character. And men of good godly character do not vow abominations to the God who wrote the law. That's why I don't believe he sacrificed his daughter. I think she was given up almost like the Nazarite. You remember Samson? Given up to a lifelong service at the tabernacle, never to marry so she'd never have children. And that broke Jephthah's heart, but he had to keep his vow. And that's how he kept his vow. So when it says in verse number 39 that he did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed, it's not lying. I just don't believe he sacrificed her. So let's wrap it up. Jephthah refused to allow his past to hinder him. He kept his word even in the face of a great dilemma. And he he shows us what it is to keep a vow. Keep your vows. Look at how people treat vows today. Marriage vows. Church membership vows. Political vows. We treat them very lightly. He gave up a lot in his Jewishness. In in giving his daughter for the Lord's service. Keep your word. If you make a vow, keep it. And here's here's the closing sentence then we're done. Be a believer unshackled by your past. Unintimidated by your enemies. Unchanging in your word. Unshackled by your past, unintimidated by your enemies, unchanging in your word. All of those things Jeff that can check the box. I think when you look at Jephthah, you have a man who's godly in his character. He could have been bitter about his past. He wasn't. He could have rejected that request for help when they came to him. He didn't. He led, and he led confident in God, and God gave the victory, and even when it cost him, he kept his word and he kept his vow. He's a good example all the way around. Let's be like Jephthah in those areas, all right? Let's stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these men and these women that are recorded in it. We pray that you would help us, Father, to emulate those good characteristics that we see and help us to learn from the bad examples that we see so that we don't repeat them. But in the end, Lord, would you help us to let your word shape how we live? How we walk, the choices that we make, may it be according to your word. My past and my feelings may get in the way, but God, your word doesn't change. Your your word, you said, Jesus, your word abides forever. So help us to build on that. It's a sure foundation, and we're so thankful for it. Bless these people as we go home to our homes tonight. Take us there safely. We're already looking forward to being together Sunday, looking forward to celebrating the birth of our Savior, Help us to do so in a way that honors him. In Jesus' name, amen.